Welcome to another episode of the Making Sense of Islam podcast. This podcast is one small part of a larger platform I've created dedicated to offering reflections on Islam, life, and mindfulness. I encourage you to visit makingsenseofislam.com to find a wide selection of articles, videos, other podcast episodes, and most importantly courses designed to distill the complexities of Islam's intellectual heritage into usable and practical tactics and strategies for day-to-day life. I'm also active on Making Sense of Islam social media accounts, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn, where you will learn about what's new and what's in the works. That's it for now. Enjoy the show. My guest today is Samira Qureshi. An occupational therapist by training, Samira is the founder of SexualHealthForMuslims.com, an online platform that she is using, that she is creating to help educate Muslims and the Muslim community widely on issues related to sexual health. I want to read to you from the website some of her uh, offerings that she has. Sexual health education across lifespan, parenting and sexual health education, Islamic schools and sexual health education, Imam and chaplain training, sexual health education and sexual violence prevention, Islamic spirituality and sexual health, and the list goes on and on and on. Samira is very unique in what she is doing. This is a uh, very frank conversation. At times it might be explicit for some people, so I do want to mention that from the beginning. I highly recommend that you go to her website, that you seek out her services, that you take her courses, that you learn from her, because this is a topic that while sometimes we're uh, afraid or ashamed to talk about it publicly, it's definitely a critical part, as you will see in this conversation, it's a critical part of life and of life's journey. And it's something that the Qur'an talks about, that the Prophet ﷺ left us so many hadith that mention this. So, without further ado, please enjoy this very frank and upfront conversation with none other than Samira Qureshi. Samira, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's such an honor and blessing to be here with you and to speak with you. So uh, we've not, we have not met in person, but we do have some mutual, uh, mutual friends. And the reason I reached out to you is uh, I think my wife sent me your account and I started following your content and every post, whether it was text, whether it was video, uh, you know, short video, long video, I was like, you know, I really like how she talks about this stuff. Like that's, that's so much respect for Islam uh, at the same time, not shying away whatsoever from, from the actual issue of sexuality. And that's actually why I reached out. I was like, you know what? This is amazing. I, I definitely want to talk to you. Uh, so first upfront, thank you for the work that you do. Uh, but going back sort of to the beginning, I want to ask you sort of just at the outset, how did you get into this field? What, what led you down this path? That is an interesting question because I did not grow up wanting to be in this field because it was not in the realm of possibility as a Muslim. My educational background is in occupational therapy, which is a rehabilitation profession that takes the whole person into account. So after graduating, I was living in Calgary, Canada, and I was assigned to Islamic schools to be a therapist for students and families there. And about a year into the project, I was assigned specifically in the field of mental health. 
So how can we teach kids about mental health in line with their Islamic values and support them living in the West now, as many immigrants to Canada need to learn? A few years after that, we noticed a lot of middle school kids really struggling in the field of sexual health. So for example, girls who would sit outside of the musalla and not pray while they were menstruating, the boys would walk by and bully them. We would get reports from boys who were asking girls for sexually explicit content. This is within Islamic schools. And then we also received disclosures of various types of abuse within families. So in speaking with the Islamic school board and the teachers, I said there has to be a way we can teach this content that is in line with our Islamic tradition because they were not teaching the provincial curriculum because it seemed like it was contradictory to Islam. So I was thankful, alhamdulillah, to find a non-Muslim sexual health educator who said, let me help you search Islam, let's find curriculum, and let's develop it. I want to mentor you in this. And that was around 2010. So we sat together, we researched, there was an incredible Islamic educator in Australia, we reached out to her, and she helped us develop curriculum. And then I started teaching it starting with fifth grade. So I began to realize how much kids needed this information. And at the same time, parental concerns around how can my kids keep their Islamic values when they're facing so much pressure as immigrants and newcomers. So I continued that work. I would come to the United States and do consultation work for nonprofits here. I moved to the DC area about five years ago. And then I worked predominantly in sexual violence prevention in Muslim spaces. And last year I had a bit of a spiritual epiphany and I realized that I was tired of sacrificing my own spirituality for this work. And I realized that I was not doing this work from within our tradition, from mm. spirituality, Islamic psychological perspectives. So I've been self-studying about Islamic spirituality, the nature of our soul, where um, ideas such as lust come from. Mm. And I'm just so amazed at the depth of what exists in terms of how and why we face what we do as you know, spiritual creations of Allah and how we need this information to make decisions that are in line with God consciousness. Because so many of the struggles that Muslims face are because we don't have the skills and knowledge to implement our Islamic teachings, right? Mm -hmm. So we know what we wanna do. We know we want to stay abstinent before marriage, but what if we experience sexual desire? How do we not act on it and how can we channel it so that we can remain abstinent until marriage. So that's a, an 11 year journey summarized in about five minutes, but that's well, the broad landscape. Well, I, I feel like you're just giving me this cake. I, I don't know <laughs> what, what's to take, but, but one thing, just a small comment or, or follow-up question. Did I hear you correctly in, in that the Islamic school in Canada had no sexual uh, education whatsoever? It was very limited if it was happening to focus only on religious rulings such as those about menstruation, those about performing ghusl, both for boys and girls. So it was very physical in nature and very religious rulings, but there wasn't anything about body yeah. image and all of that um, at all. Yeah, it's just no. more like Sharia focused, like what happens when you have like a wet dream or when you-, when you Exactly. Okay. I, exactly. I, 
Okay. Exactly. So there was there was something, but because then you said the girls were not in the masala, so I'm thinking, well, they must know yes. that you know, then they don't pray. Okay. Exactly. Um, well, look, I mean, a lot of what you said is is music uh, to my ears. I mean, my one of my big things on this entire platform is is what I call the Muslim mind. Uh, actually, the first course that I put together for the platform is called the Muslim mind, and and I feel like you, but in, I mean, you're you're the expert in your field, but in, in other fields, I feel one of our problems is we've lost touch with our paradigm, we've yes. lost touch with which are with our first principles, and oftentimes, like you said, we know what we want to do, but we're, there's like a gap or, or a couple of gaps between us and, and what we want to do. And it's those first principles that, that we need. So, I mean, I applaud you. That's, that's wonderful uh, connecting. If you don't mind me just sort of, because Tasawuf is such a big part of, yes. of my, my personal life and what I teach, I, you, you kind of, you know, I have an antenna for that. So I can't help but ask, you know, <laughs> spiritual epiphany, uh, what were sort of some of the tools that you used? Uh, were there any certain books or people or lectures or a, a certain practice, if, if you don't mind me asking, uh, mm -hmm. that sort of helped catalyze that quest for you? Mm. I moved to DC um, because I felt like I was on a spiritual journey and needed to be here. And so I was seeking knowledge out, especially from Dr. Sayed Hossein Nas in the area and never really understood though what it meant to be spiritual. Mm. And at the time working in nonprofit spaces, I defined my Muslimness by my work with Muslims. So I understood it as, Samira, you have been given certain challenges in life, and your purpose as a Muslim is to now go out in Muslim spaces, educate others, prevent violence, and you are spiritual because of your work. And I remember um, being told that, no, <laughs> you're not spiritual because of your work. You can only gain spiritual connection with Allah through spiritual practice. And, it, and that was in 2018. I was told that. And I'm like, what does that mean? Does that mean I can't work? And, and what, like, if my mind was blown and, I, and subhanAllah, the opening was not there. So the following year, right before COVID hit, um, my husband and I went to reviving the Islamic Spirit Conference in Toronto. Dr. Nas gave a lecture about theodicy understanding if, of course, as you know, if God is good, then why does harm and evil exist? Sure. So working in the sexual violence prevention field, I had been traveling across the country talking to Muslims about this is why people abuse and harm. Mm. I walked into that lecture. And three hours later, I walked out with my mind blown, realizing that I can no longer do the work in the way that I'm doing because of the depth of what Islam offers in this topic. Hmm. So I come back to Virginia and alhamdulillah, you see my husband has a ton of books on Islamic philosophy. So I'm like, the Odyssey, the Odyssey, I, got, I have to learn about this, the soul, the ego, nafs, hmm. evil. And um, that's when my epiphany happened and then COVID hit. And as yourself, I'm also on a path of tasawuf and I can't express um, the change that I felt from this epiphany, not only personally, obviously, but professionally. Mm. It, is, it is what you see with my work now. And it's been only a year and a half of me knowing very little. <laughs> so um, that is the epiphany that happened. And I, I think we can't learn about anything, as you said, without examining our soul. And you're right, we have lost that in our tradition. And especially with sexuality, I think it's so important that we reconnect that. 
So I'm smiling because honestly, Samir, you're describing me when I was 17, 18, and I went to college and I met uh, Dr. Nuss for the first time. I had no idea, who, I've never heard that name before, didn't know he was at my university. Uh, I just took his intro Islam or Islam 101 because I thought it would be like an easy A, like, like most <laughs> Muslim kids. And honestly, the first lecture, I was like, well, this guy, I've never seen, in my mind, I, I said to myself, I've never seen a smart Muslim before. Like a Muslim who's intellectual, philosophical, I've never seen that up until that time in my life. I thought that, you know, I, I don't mean anything derogatory, but Islam was like aunties and uncles in the masjid. You know, I never encountered that. I was totally blown away. And um, the reason you can't articulate it is because some of these things you can't articulate in words. It's just a feeling. I, I, I mean, you know, and I know, right? But yes. it's very hard to pass that on to somebody else because it's something that you, it's like self-transformation. And uh, I took, you know, he altered the course of my life, essentially, without any exaggeration. I took all of his courses. Uh, you know, I have pretty much all of his books. And that set me out early on on my course, on my, you know, pursuit of knowledge. But his way of discussing, I mean, for me, he's the one that introduced me to Al-Ghazali. Mm -hmm. So Ghazali is, for me, an uh, important figure in my intellectual growth and, and remains so. Um, and it, it's, it's like anchoring everything into the discipline of the, of the soul, you know, the, you know co conquering yourself and having that deep spiritual reservoir. Um, so I, I'm not the least bit surprised that in just a year, year and a half, you know, you've gone through this. And alhamdulillah, it looks like COVID was a catalyst for you, uh, you know, to kind of incubate this project. So uh, that's, that's, that's awesome. I mean, uh, it's been many years since I've seen him. Uh, hopefully we can get him on, on the podcast. I know there's some logistical issues with that. But anyway, we can talk about Dr. Nuss until the cows come home. Yes. Um, but so look. One of the things that I, and sort of, I'm kind of asking this like personally for advice, like I, I do a lot of counseling uh, with couples and I have noticed without any exaggeration, I would say eight, nine times out of 10 uh, problems are rooted into some type, some sort of intimacy issues. Mm -hmm. uh, there are issues of performance. Mm -hmm. There are issues of, uh, you know, very common, a woman will say, my husband doesn't touch me anymore. Like doesn't touch me at all. Yeah. I haven't had intercourse in months, years. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, issues of, of pornography yeah. that, that, that you know, I'm, sometimes I'm able to, to discover. Uh, and of course, my role is a little bit different or a lot different than your role. You know, I don't get into to the mechanics uh, or, or, the, or the, 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 int, into, uh, the intimate practices, but I have noticed that I'm, and I'm surprised, I was surprised at first how pervasive the, the intimacy, issues of intimacy are and how they just sort of, they discolor everything else, the entire other relationship with the spouse, relationship with the children, relationship with the in-laws, you know, work performance, et cetera. So I've noticed that. I, I'm curious what sort of themes, if you look at your work thematically, the people that you work with, the question, I know you get a lot of questions, mashallah. What kind of, if you can chunk them together in like, let's say the top five, what are the top five issues and themes that you are seeing that frustrate, you know, Muslim sexuality, if we can say that? Yes. All right. So categorically, I think the first big one is not understanding spiritual perspectives of sexual intimacy in marriage. Okay. So, for example, um, the focus on rights, in quotes, of husband and wife and the overemphasis on male sexual pleasure and not understanding female sexual pleasure and the mutuality that Allah has provided within marriage. That would be one category, which you alluded to. 
you know, the lack of physical and sexual intimacy between spouses. The second I would say is miseducation from lack of sexual health education, pornography being such a primary source, um, leading to expectations and misunderstandings of female sexuality because Allah created men and women's sexual desires to be quite different. And science actually backs up what Islam has known when we talk about looking at hadith about sexual pleasure. Mm. Um, the third issue I would say relates to the topic of shame, which is a feeling of disconnect from one's God-given sexuality. It could have come across from trauma. It could have been from lack of education because when we don't have words about our body, it's as if that part of us doesn't exist or Muslims are told it's a light switch. Just turn it off until you're married because it's haram and then turn it on when you sign your nikah papers. So there's this disconnect that happens. We don't learn about how to understand our sexuality and we don't have to be sexually active. We can still learn about it. Another category I would say is a lot of Muslims don't prioritize sexual intimacy. There's this misconception that it needs to be spontaneous. And if it's not spontaneous, then something's wrong. And it's usually an issue with the wife is what is thought. <laughs> so we think that scheduling sexual intimacy is not a good practice when a lot of experts say you need to schedule intimacy as you would schedule a date with your spouse, because then it prioritizes and helps um, spouses create environments to share in desire and pleasure with their spouse because it's not a light switch. We need to be in the right context, emotionally, spiritually, and physically to share an intimacy. And with a million things pulling at our mind, children, family members, stress, work, fatigue, COVID, our sexual systems will be shut down until we foster time and space for it. And then I'll say maybe a fifth category is a lot of things that Muslim women struggle with is uh, pain during sexual intimacy. This is predominantly happening with uh, first time sexual intercourse after marriage. And it can also happen after the postpartum period after childbirth. We are conditioned as women to believe intercourse is going to be painful. And a lot of men are not taught that we need a gradual comfort with intimacy after marriage. It's not zero to a hundred. Mm. And uh, I mean, there's many hadith about foreplay um, being important before you engage in intercourse specifically. So I would say those are the five categories I'm seeing quite often um, among Muslim spouses. So one of the things that um, you, you said that that is very uh, relevant to my work is the idea of rights. You know, when somebody, when a couple comes to me and they start talking rights, I'm like, look, you guys, you guys didn't form a business. You guys are married. Yes. You know, rights, that's like the default, you know, like if, yes. if that, like that's what a judge needs. Like we need, we need some sort of basic standard, you know, if a man is not living mm -hmm. up to it, okay, you're not living up to it. So the courts can come in, but I don't talk, you can't talk to your wife about rights, my rights, your rights. It's not a business, you know, it's not a, yes. even though it is a contract Islamically, but I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's yes. And, and I think that um, I don't think I was necessarily raised that way uh, personally. I, I don't have any sisters. Uh, I'm sure I'm biased, but I'm, and I can't even see my own bias, but I have noticed in, in people that come from Muslim majority cultures, 
even sometimes if they're second and sometimes even third generations, there's this like a guy will come to me, you know, isn't it my right that my wife does such and such? I was like, I mean, you know, that's one way of looking at it. But if, if, if you're looking at your wife in that way, you probably don't have a healthy marriage to start out with yes. because the marriage Allah says is based on, you know, mawadda wa rahma, love and mercy. Uh, he doesn't talk about the rights and the list, the bill of rights yes. of the spouses. So I, that's something I think is very important because I've noticed that too, that people are usually men coming, you know, she's not fulfilling like my needs and, you know, and things like that. Um, but you did say something else, which I think is also really important. Well, first of all, before shame, because that's where I actually, I wanted to go. I wanted to ask something about the pain part. Uh, if you could, I mean, it might be a little explicit, but I, I am very interested. Is this more, are these like physiological problems? Is it universal? Is it with some women more than other women? And uh, I would suspect then that a lot of what I'm seeing in the, in the performance, when there's performance issues, they're probably based on that, but maybe people are embarrassed to say. So can you expand a little bit on that last part about the, the pain, particularly women experiencing pain during, uh, during intercourse? Yes. So from my knowledge, there's a wide range of what's called sexual or pelvic floor dysfunctions. And when we specifically talk about pain during sexual intercourse with women, especially those who are having um, sex for the first time and onwards in marriage, it's a connection between and bringing Islam into it, uh, body, mind and soul. So when we look at why women may have pain, there may actually be physical muscular tightness, there may be hormonal issues, there may be nerve issues. So I often tell women, go see a pelvic pain specialist. And I did a video about this first, you need to rule out medical conditions because it's not all in your head. And that's really important, as you said, to realize that there's a body mind soul connection. So that's the body part. Hmm. The mind part comes when we don't have accurate information about our bodies, and we may have mislearned unhelpful information such as you know, when we don't learn about what the vagina is, and we learn unhelpful messages that sex will be painful, when we don't even have the ability to identify our body parts, and now we're sharing ourselves in such an intimate way with a spouse, and we can't even label our own body, you can imagine that the brain is going to fire off a lot of fear signals that's going to cause your pelvic floor muscles to tense. And in women, especially, there's been research showing that our pelvic floor muscles are like our jaw and our shoulders, they hold a lot of tension. So you can imagine that you're you may a new wife bride may brace for pain during intercourse, her muscles will unconsciously tighten and pain happens at attempted intercourse even. So there is um, a full dynamic happening and the soul comes in when we look at as you know, where does fear actually originate from? And we have to look at rewriting fear-based narratives within our ego to really understand spiritual perspectives. And we need to relearn the fact that Allah created intercourse to be pleasurable. Yeah. We have been given, females have been given a specific sexual organ just for pleasure. So this is where I believe it's we have to look at the soul as well and really ground ourselves spiritually because intercourse and intimacy is an act of Ibadan worship. So we need to ground ourselves in ways that we can use liquor and meditation, you know, prayers to really be in our body and to be within our soul so that we are not entering into intimate 
um, activities with our spouse in a fearful state. So it really is body, mind, and soul when we're looking at why and the treatment as well. So you've just given me a totally new tafsir to this hadith. <laughs> the Prophet ﷺ said to, to men, he said, Rifqan bil qawarir, you know, be gentle with those who are fragile. Yes. And I've always had a hard, I mean, I don't have a hard time personally with the hadith, but when I say it in English, I, I know that the one woman somewhere is going to be like, well, who said that we're fragile? And, and, uh, and I always yeah. struggle with how to explain it. But now you've, you've given me a, bre- I mean, this is like an epiphany for me, like a brand new tafsir, because this is one of the meanings of that hadith, you know, that um, mm-hmm. it, it does take time, you know, yes. to, uh, for a woman, as you said, with all that anxiety and new bride, etc. Uh, it's going to take time. And the Prophet ﷺ is telling men, you know, be careful when you're, when you're doing that. Uh, and in a way, he's also saying, you know, that's your job. You know, your yes. job is to be careful. It's, it's not like, oh, be careful. You have to tolerate her because she's weak. No, no, no. He's saying it's your job to be careful because that's yes. how Allah created her. And um, again, it's easy to say these things. But, but when you see couples, like I had somebody come to me, believe it or not, not too long ago. And I think he was a newlywed. And he was saying something like, uh, like my wife didn't bleed like on our first night. So she's mm-hmm. not a virgin. I was like, are you kidding me? I mean, do you, do you actually, I didn't, I mean, we read that in the books, but I never saw anyone that actually believed in that, at least yeah. in North America. I was like, man, forget that nonsense. When you said that stuff that, you know, the hymen and that stuff can, can disappear, yeah. does disappear. Not even all women have it to start. That's out with. right. That's, that's yeah. not a sign of virginity in the shitty. No. It's not like you go to court with that. So, you know, there, you'd be surprised, or maybe you're not surprised. I, I'm, I'm not. still surprised by <laughs> some of the stuff that I see. Um, so shame, shame seems to be an overriding, uh, you know, issue. I, I talked to, to a woman uh, not too long ago. Uh, you know, I thought the conversation was about this. And within 10, 15 minutes, we ended up here. And, you know, she started mm-hmm. breaking down. And I think she like even moved the camera away and from her face. She, she was so embarrassed. And I was like, look, I mean, I'm not, I don't know you. I'm not judging you. I'm here to help. But yeah. uh, my God, all that pain she was carrying because of mm-hmm. the shame of, of some problem that she's having with her husband, it can be so like limiting and it, and it can be like debilitating. So can you talk to us about shame and embarrassment, how you see it in the work you do and what are some of the tools you are using to help people overcome that when it comes to sexuality? Yes. So it's helpful to define shame, as you said, in terms of it being a deep feeling of inherent unworthiness. And I think as Muslim, this even goes as deep to say that I feel unworthy as a spiritual person. Like there's a disconnection, especially with regards to someone's sexuality. It's seen as something shameful, literally. Even beyond embarrassment, shamefulness really shuts us down from the inside. And dealing with shame is very challenging. And I don't know if Muslims realize how challenging it is to undo shame. Hmm. So there are many reasons why shame shows up. As we've talked about, it could be from lack of education, um, miseducation from pornography, the, the kind of her, what I call haram box conversations of sex means that because we know obviously sex before marriage is impermissible, it shuts down any conversations about any other topic as well. And when we don't have language or awareness about something, we feel disconnected from it. So we carry shame mentally within our soul, I believe as well. And also physically it manifests. And so it's within oneself and shared in relationships. 
So you can imagine like this client that you're speaking about, she holds such deep shame about what she's coming to you with. No wonder she's having issues. For example, I'm assuming being or sharing an intimacy with her husband, or maybe it's in terms of, you know, receiving sexual pleasure. I'm not sure, but it's limiting in many ways. So shame leads to shamefulness. And a lot of Muslims are shameful. And there's actually some research that shows the opposite can happen, which is shamelessness. So we can feel so overburdened by shame that the way we overcome it is by rejecting everything that we are feeling ashamed about. So we see this, for example, in Muslims who may engage in a lot of sexual activity because they've received shameful messages. They're trying to manage it and deal with it. And their way of dealing with it is rejecting it. Then there's shamefulness, which is what we're talking about, which results in a shutdown. And then there's a third category, which um, I learned in this book called Beyond Shame, which is like autopilot, where we're just kind of flitting through life and we're not sure what our Islamic values are. So we're making decisions in the moment. Sometimes they're shameful. Sometimes they're shameless. So those are the three consequences of holding a lot of shame. The way we deal with shame is to start to learn and dismantle it. So as you can see from, and you mentioned from the work I'm doing, it's by learning authentic spiritual perspectives about ourselves, starting from how Allah created us, including our sexuality. So I often will say, you know, we're sexual beings from birth to death. We're not sexually active that long. But little kids, when they're two and you're potty training them or you're bathing them, may actually touch their private parts, not for sexual reasons, because they actually are curious or they're like, oh, there's some sort of good feeling, but it feels like ticklish. So this is normal child sexual development that we teach kids, though, with our values in a non-shameful way to manage that. So we have to see our sexual health as being part of us from a very young age. And we teach kids skills accordingly to their life stage in accordance to spirituality in accordance to Islamic, you know, guidance around hygiene and how to change your clothes and who you show your body to and why, without using the words, you know, punishment, hellfire and God, we can, you know, have other ways to talk about it. Because that terminology actually causes shame. And I and that's a struggle for Muslims. But when we say, you know, don't have sex before marriage, you'll go to hell. What about the why? Like, why should Muslims wait to have sex until marriage? How should they wait to have sex? What are the benefits of delaying our gratification sexually until marriage? It's like telling a two-year-old not to touch a stove, but not telling them why. You're going to hurt and burn yourself. And you might have to, you know, get care from a doctor. Like, we need to explain why. Yeah. Um, and that, that why often isn't explained because we're worried it'll make us more curious. When we actually know... The opposite's true. You know, I think shame is tough for us because there is, I wouldn't call it shame, but there is some value when you do something wrong and you feel bad or embarrassed yes. that you've done something wrong. One of, you know, Allah's names is a satar, the, the one who veils. And, you know, one of the ways that manifests is like, I, I've done many wrong things that you don't know about. You've done many th wrong things that I don't know yes. about. And that's like Allah's protection that we have yes. with each other. And if I do something wrong, I feel bad about it. 
And, but I've done something wrong. So there's like a reason why I feel bad. So I wouldn't call it shame. Yes. Uh, but you know what you're describing? It's like, I'm just sh shameful for, I just feel like this is like taboo. Like I'm not supposed to feel like this or I'm not supposed to be like this. And, and it's, it's tough. You know, even, I mean, what you're saying is almost verbatim, the hadith, the prophet saw said, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you have no shame, then do, if somebody has no shame, then they'll end up doing whatever they want. Mm -hmm. And he's, he's criticizing that person, meaning that that type of shame or embarrassment will, will rein you in. You'll, you'll be mm. embarrassed to, to do wrong things in public. But if you don't care, yeah. you know, if you're shameless, like you're saying, you just, you know, you go out and do whatever. Um, but I can see it's like a, it's a, it's a fine line, you know, uh, because in, in the modern uh, paradigm, it's definitely considered a negative concept, you know, to have shame and, and being conservative and whatnot. So I guess it's like what you're saying is you're almost advocating for like a piecemeal approach, like across the different ages of sexual education. Like you don't, you don't just wait till, oh, you're a man now, you're a woman now. Let me tell you about the birds and the bees, yeah. you know, yes. uh, from the Sharia point of view, but rather it's sort of like staged. And I, I, li I like that. Uh, so Samir, when are you gonna have this curriculum for us so we can start teaching? <laughs> that I'm working on. May I comment on the shame part you mentioned? Please, no, yeah, please, please. So I think you bring up push back. I mean, this is yeah, just, no, um, you actually bring up a really good point. I kind of I get asked that a lot. Well, Samira, if you're saying shame is not helpful, how do we stay in line with our Islamic values? So what I think happened is exactly what you said about the modern connotation of shame, and how understanding it Islamically is a mismatch. So in the modern context of, you know, 2021, I often talk about guilt being helpful. So we need to be aware of when we act against our values and when we make decisions that may contradict God consciousness, that we need to have. That guilt though means that we can work to get back on track to ensure that we are in line with our values. So there's authenticity and we're being, we have spiritual integrity. Hmm. Shame feels more like I did something wrong and also I am a disgusting bad person who has no self-worth and there's no hope for mercy and this is horrible. So you can see there's a difference because now you feel inherently unworthy. It's like self-loathing. Thank you. Yes, that's a perfect word. And, and sometimes people even feel that way in terms of their connection with Allah. Hmm. So they have heard all of the fear and hellfire consequences. We hmm. often don't talk about the Rahmah. So that's the difference between having guilt and how there's a disconnect between the word shame from a traditional perspective and, you know, modern perspective. Well, it's funny. The, the self-loathing is, is almost like a not I don't mean it in a derogatory way, but it's, it's Christian. That's a that's a yes. Christian Catholic yes. way of, of looking yes. at it, which which for us is completely antithetical to our paradigm. Because no matter what you do, Allah is going to forgive you. That's why he's a Rahman. That's right. And, he, yeah. and the prophet said, you know, all of you will commit sins. And the best of you who commit sins are those who turn back the most, mm -hmm. you know, in Tawbah. So from that point of view, uh, not that I'm advocating that we sin, but, but we, we were yes. built to sin. I mean, in other words, we were yeah. built to, to commit those sins in order to turn back to Allah Ta'ala. Uh, and I do, I, I, many, many, many people that I, I, I uh, um, counsel and, 
I tend to, many of them have this deep, you know, rooted belief, I'm too far gone. You know, there's mm -hmm. no hope for me. Allah doesn't love me. You know, I'm like, what are you talking about? We're Muslim. I mean, mm -hmm. Of course, Allah, lo Allah loves everyone. Allah loves everything. Yeah. He created you. <laughs> Why yeah. would you be here in front of me asking this question if Allah didn't give you the ability to do that in the first place, seeking help? Mm -hmm. So uh, that's, I think, one of the instances where the, where the predominant paradigm kind of like seeps into our psyche and it kind of occupies yes. some of our consciousness and we start to feel bad. So I think that that's good that you're talking about it that way. Because if you look at Islamic history, you know, sexuality is something that is praised, uh, is something mm -hmm. that is lauded. Uh, one of the things that I discovered when I was a young Sharia student to like my utmost surprise was the amount of sex manuals that the ulama wrote. Yes. And of course, <laughs> yes. the minute we found out, we went straight to the bookstores and we're like, hey, you have... And then the guy yeah. would be like, shh, 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 I can't tell people for me to sell this. But he'd like, go like- Under, under the table. He'd like, look around and be like, you're here, you know? Yeah. And um, uh, of course you couldn't understand anything because all the sex manual in like, you know, 600 year old Arabic. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, but anyway, I mean, of course we had to get them. And I mean, Suyuti, Imam Suyuti is one of those figures that comes to mind. I think he wrote like three or four when I was looking at the index of his manuscripts. Um, mm -hmm. So- and I, I have one of them and I, I remember looking at it and you'd be shocked that this was Imam Asyuti, like this Imam of Hadith and this Mujtahid and this and that. He's the same guy writing about how you perform, how you overcome obstacles. I mean, at their time, it's, it's obviously yes. uh, painted in their cultural context. Right. Um, you know, where are we? Like, I, I ask myself, like, why aren't we doing that? So I've never spoken about this publicly, what I'm about to tell you, but um, mm -hmm. I was involved in a very, very tiny very, very unofficial uh, sex education project in Egypt when I was living mm -hmm. there and I was working at the National Fatwa Office. And many of the, the people that were coming to the Fatwa Office uh, uh, had marital problems. And as mm -hmm. I mentioned to you earlier, many of the marital problems had to do with performance. And mm -hmm. I remember a lot of the muftis were asking me, well, you know, you're American, you're in America, can you help track down, like what's the latest in sex education? Um, you know, I went to many shady places, uh, <laughs> many shady things and books, yeah. um, just so that, that we could learn like what was happening. And one of my teachers, he said something uh, very uh, astonishing. He looked at all this stuff. He said, you see, if Muslims had created this, we would have done it completely different. He's like, this is done in a way that sort of, I guess we would say like pornifies sex. Yeah. He's like, yeah. if we did it, we would have done it in a way to help people. Right. Um, and, and, and that for me was an important link that I remember mm. that all of those ulama in the past that were writing about this stuff, they were writing for the purpose, not of, uh, for some kind of negative, negative, you know, reason, but in order to help people, because it's a, mm. these are common problems. So do you think, or first of all, are, are, have you come across some of these writings of the past of like the classical period? That's one question. Number two what do you think is the gap between like Islamic intellectual leadership today and, and, and the, that, what we had in the past? Where is that gap? Mm -hmm. You know, I've just started looking more into historical traditional texts. So it's something that I'm working on and um, will take time for me to do. I've more, I think, focused on understanding the psychological perspectives and linking it to because so many of the issues I'm seeing have to do with understanding the difference between lust and healthy sexual desire in marriage and being able to channel that because that directly links to so many of the issues with 
young and old Muslims, to be honest, um, within and outside of marriage. And that kind of leads to your second question of, you know, what's the disconnect? I feel like intellectuals and scholars in our tradition, I mean, I'm, as you, Al-Ghazali has been monumental with me learning these approaches, they seem to be rooted in the reality of the day. They really seem to understand how to speak with Muslims and the issues that Muslims were facing. Now I feel like there is a giant disconnect and gap between understanding, you know, the deal on the streets, so to speak, and people who are scholars, academics, and intellectuals. And I don't want to br- uh, paint this picture with a broad brush. I mean, sure, sure. Dr. Nas is one example of an intellectual who completely understands <laughs> things that are happening in today's life. But I, I feel like, uh, look, I, I look at where a lot of mainstream Islamic education comes from and it completely guts our spiritual tradition. So it is very much about the law and Sharia. Um, I don't wanna talk about specific countries or colonization. I'm sure that could be a huge topic, but there has been a colonization of our tradition and the puritanical influences that have come in and has seeped into certain schools of thought within Islam is now how Muslims are learning about sexual health and sexuality. And I think that's the disconnect ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would agree. Uh, I mean, of course, I have my own thoughts about the specifics, but uh, there's no, we, I just mentioned, you know, you mentioned Ghazali, I mentioned the Siuti. There's no, it's no coincidence that these are two monumental Sufi figures. Yes. Uh, and it seems to me that, you know, whenever you find like a luminary person in Islamic history, whether they're, you know, from the world of Sunni Islam or even or Shia Islam, there's some sort of deep spiritual um, apparatus behind them. And it's, it's, it's quite simply because that's what unlocks human creativity. One of the things that Imam al-Ghazali wrote about uh, two students of the law, is he mm-hmm. said, one's, uh, if you want to be a mujtahid in the, in, in, in the legal sense, your ijtihad is only going to be as good as your creativity. Because mm-hmm. if the mujtahid can be creative, and sort of extrapolate and, and, and postulate what might happen in the future, the more he can do that or she can do that, the more accurate and the more robust their ijtihad will be. And you can't really do that unless you have a deep, in, in, the, in the paradigm of Islam, unless you have a spiritual practice, because that's, that's the tool that you use to exercise that muscle. So I'm not surprised that, that there's like this disconnect. And you're right. I mean, look, I would even go for as far as to say part, part of the problem with our educational, ed, Islamic educational system is it's really stuck on, memor, I mean, memorization is important. It's an important tool, mm-hmm. but, but memorizing answers rather yeah. than learning how to ask questions and then mm-hmm. answer those questions. And that, again, you need to be creative and, and whatnot. And look, it's not for everybody. By default, it's only going to be a small segment of people that will be able to do that. But I agree that that's part of the problem. Um, I also would go as far as to say is, look, when I studied, I had no, I had zero female teachers. Mm-hmm. I had no female, t- even though there were some women that taught at Al-Azhar in different faculties, but I, I didn't have the opportunity to study with them. And when you look in the past, like maybe six, seven, eight hundred years ago, there were all that had hundreds of women teachers. Yes. Which means that the dynamic of society was also very different. And, you know, I don't find it uh, a coincidence that, you, you know, this issue, you're the one that's leading this issue, like a female, not me. 
Mm. And I think that there's something to that. And I think that uh, if we don't, if we don't tackle this quickly, yeah. we, we might lose a tremendous opportunity to educate, you know, young people, young Muslim boys and girls, uh, w- you know, the right way from now, because the, the, the pornography thing that I'm noticing that's, that's innervating like all of these, these uh, relationships and messing them up is it's, it's like a monster. It's very hard to mm-hmm. undo. It's like an mm-hmm. addiction. Uh, it, it gets, yeah. it, it's like, it can be violent even. It can lead to asexual activity, which is mm-hmm. what I'm also noticing uh, with some couples or with some y- young men, for example. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the time is, was like last year, you know, that we needed to do this, not, not, not in the future. So I hope we can bridge this gap. I mean, I, I think what you're doing, as I've mentioned, is really, really important. Um, and, uh, you know, that's, that's great that you've taken this step. Now, I do want to ask, uh, I'm sure you've gotten some detractors <laughs> so I like to, I like to also learn about the scars. I mean, I can share with you my scars too, but sometimes you learn more from the pain, I think, and the detractors, but is there any like famous or your top like negative story you can share with us or bad run-in that you've learned from in doing this work? You know, I think people are surprised when I honestly say it hasn't been that many instances. Um, okay. <laughs> and I think back so my work in you know calgary canada within the islamic community there people knew me i was in and out of those schools they built trust with me they saw you know me and my own islamic journey and that's how i think this work was done in traditional times as you can imagine in collectivist communities like we are you know the time of the prophet there were elders around, there were scholars around, there were teachers, men and women, there was a community around there. And I think when I started this work for the eight years in Calgary doing it, I was part of this community. And absolutely, there were people who thought that I was making up the issues, that I was creating a lot of problems. And those were more, you know, board level, um, administrative, um, people in positions of power, which I now understand that was their ego. But the parents on the ground and the teachers, like those were the champions. So alhamdulillah, it it was stressful. I'm probably minimizing the stress at the time because hindsight's 2020. But I just felt this strong conviction and had enough champions that I, Hmm. you know, had the odd parent maybe say, you know, I don't want my child doing this. You're ruining their um, innocence. And I'm like, okay, this whole innocence thing is a little ridiculous, but (laughs) okay. if you but knew yeah. what, happened, what happens in those schools, you would know that those kids are not innocent. Yes. No. <laughs> I mean, I have, I could write books about the Islamic schools I've been in. But, and then, you know, Tarek, one thing that I've come to realize, and I want to be like careful about how I um, say this to respect my past work life. I think how the manner in which this work is done is going to attract the similar type of energy from others. Mm. So if I'm going out into the Muslim, you know, online world with very strong, aggressive, angry tones to my work, then guess what? I'm going to attract a lot of defensiveness, anger and aggression back. And I found when I worked in activist spaces doing violence prevention work, that was the tone that my work was taking. Mm. And I got that back um, more than I do now. And it was through my spiritual epiphany and realizing that that's not 
who I am. That's, that's not how I spiritually ground myself. My work is not how I am a Muslim and it's not how I gain spiritual benefit. It's my work and it's my work. Like it's, I love it, but it's also work. Um, and I, when I started sexual health for Muslims, I just felt like, and you know, it's hard to explain, as you said, like this calmness and resoluteness just overcame me. And I, what you see now, I think is really reflective of where I am. I believe in groundedness and I believe in critical thinking and compassion. I don't tell people what to do or think. I would love to provide as much information as possible, ground ourselves in our religion and say, you are accountable to Allah, ultimately and internally accountable to Allah as well. You need to make decisions and use the intellect that Allah has gifted you with. And that's a paradigm shift from saying, you know, this needs to be done in this way because of this hadith and this verse. Like that's a different energy, right? Yeah. And I've been in both worlds. So I feel blessed and, you know, I, inshallah, I don't receive flack after this when I'm talking about it out loud. <laughs> but, you know, I, I've been in both worlds and I, and I think the way in which this work is done is critical. Well, no, I mean, I, I've noticed your, your demeanor is, is, is very, I would say very zen. Uh, and, and I think, and I applaud you for that because I'm not always Zen and you're right. If you're not, if you're, if you're combative, you attract that, you know, so sometimes I'm the source of my own frustration. I can see that now talking to you out loud, but I would also say that it's interesting. One of the reasons you probably, you know, mashallah, things are, go, are the, the response is positive is because so many people have problems and they realize that they need to hear this. Um, yes. You know, so the pe people are just like listening and, and you yes. know, in a way acknowledging, yeah, we have issues. Right. Um, you know, what couple, what married couple doesn't have issues? You know, uh, who, who doesn't have questions about their sexuality? Yes. Uh, where do you turn, though, when you, you know, if you're growing up, like, w like when we grew up, where do you turn to to ask those questions? I mean, I, there, I couldn't ask my parents that stuff. Right. So, right. And I didn't feel comfortable bringing it up at school because I always felt like, well, oh, these people are just different than me or I'm different than they are. And it's just we're not going to relate. Mm. So uh, I think that that's also probably uh, one of the good reasons. Alhamdulillah, the, the reception has been great. So, look, th there will be in the notes of the episode, there'll be links to your, uh, you know, any anything you want me to link. Of course, the Instagram account, you know, website, anything. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that we should, that the audience should also know about if people want to reach out to you or if people want to, like, are you open to be like, can people book a session with you or how does it work? You know, work. Yes, like? absolutely. That's a good question. So people think, you know, I'm, I'm just social media, but actually I offer one-on-one -on -one consultations. So I'm not a counseling therapist. I'm an occupational therapist, but that means I can provide education insights and connect people to resources. And of course, um, give um, Islamic perspectives as much as possible. So absolutely through my website. Okay. And ultimately, um, my goal is to create an online sexual health platform for Muslims with on-demand courses across the lifespan, inshallah. I'm working to kind of um, take it out slowly and roll it out. But I really want to start with understanding our tradition and how it relates to being and having sexual health. I think we need to understand how Allah created us, including our sexual health, and then talk about the issues we're facing and why before we go into the heavy, you know, sexual health content. So inshallah, starting late summer, I'll be rolling those out. And I want to remove barriers. I think we have enough of those. <laughs> so I feel like online means 
privacy of your own home, you can access content, inshallah. Okay, great. Then we definitely need to speak offline about that. <laughs> Uh, because I have some some things that might be of, of use for you uh, that I'd like to discuss with you, but we could do that offline now, now while we're, yes. we're talking. To you. <laughs> um, uh, uh, well, that's awesome. So I applaud that, and uh, that's wonderful. And um, I mean, I love the fact that you know you even you even phrased that people can just do it out of the comfort of their own home because of the yeah. sensitivity. Sensitivity. Uh, I before we we started recording. Uh, uh, I saw that, I, I can't remember the name of the book, but you, you posted about a book that you're reading that's like blowing your mind. So I usually like to ask guests at the end to share like a last thought or a quote. Uh, if, there's, if, that, if that book, if a quote from that book uh, inspires you, uh, advice for me or for everybody, but you know, I'd like to have, have you have the last word. Oh, thank you for that. Um, I've shared um, a verse in the Quran that I contemplate on a lot it's um chapter 13 verse 11 indeed or verily allah will not change the condition of a people until they change what is in themselves and i'm not a scholar or <laughs> understand context of that verse to me it signifies this journey of inwardness that i think we're so in need of mm -hmm. and this topic of sexual health and sexuality is absolutely no different because Ultimately, we're here to elevate our God consciousness, to work to better ourselves. As Ibn Arabi said, our, we are our greatest struggle. <laughs> mm. um, so I will often um, advise Muslims, if you're open to hearing this, so many of, of the issues and discomfort that we have with this topic really reflects what we need to address internally. And I mean, outside of situations where there's, God forbid, abuse or anything, I'm talking about just general everyday issues. We often don't turn inwards first. And we expect situations around us to change. And as we talk about tasawuf and inwardness, I really think that that's important to reflect on. If you're uncomfortable with this topic, if you have internal issues or trauma, turn inwards and gain awareness first. And inshallah, God will be there on your journey. That's beautiful. That's a great way to end. Thank you so much for that. Uh, and thank you for your time and for your work. Uh, I wish you all the best uh, for what you're doing. I recommend, of course, your services and your website. And uh, I hope that we can stay in touch. I, I'm very keen to see how this develops and manifests and sort of you share it with the world. Uh, and I will, I'll send you an email to follow up on some of this other stuff that's offline, inshallah. But thank you, Samir, very much. I really appreciate it. It's, it's been an honor, alhamdulillah, and, and really appreciate the space and getting to chat with you, mashallah. I'm, I'm learning a lot from your, your work as well. So well, it you. was a lovely to chat. Ne next time in person, you and, and your husband should come over. Inshallah. And we can share a meal together, inshallah. Inshallah, and you're always welcome here as well. All right, take care. Assalamu alaikum. You as well. Welcome, salam. One more thing before you tune out. To help me stay focused and manage all the things I'm doing, I put together a weekly email called Friday Ruminations that highlights what I'm reading, working on, and thinking in four focus areas. Happiness, entrepreneurship, books, and Islam. If you'd like to receive these emails, which are 100% free, please go to makingsenseofislam.com forward slash Friday to sign up.